You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Christian Davenport, a reporter here covering NASA and the spaceflight industry. And I'm thrilled to be joined this morning by Dave Limp, the Senior Vice President at Amazon for Devices and Services, the man who oversaw the development of the Alexa device. Uh, but of course, this morning, he's here to discuss satellite, space, and the internet. Uh, Dave, good morning. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks, Christian. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. It's a pleasure. Uh, a disclosure, of course, that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. We always point that out. Uh, and a note to our audience, we want you to join the conversation. Please tweet to us at Post Live all of your questions and comments, and we'll look forward to going through those. Uh, but Dave, I just want to start with you. When you talk about Project Kuiper, what are its main goals and objectives? I wonder if you can give us sort of the big overview. Yeah, we added a leadership principle last year, which I think was a good one, a new one for Amazon, which says with uh, scale and success comes broad responsibility. And, you know, Amazon's not a small company any longer. And I think as, as we think about that, when we can find projects that are an intersection of things that we could do that five people in a garage wouldn't be able to do, but that are good businesses, we certainly want to make sure they're good businesses, but that are also good for society. Those are the kinds of problems we'd like to attack. And I think Kuiper really fits into that envelope very well. It's a uh, low Earth orbit uh, satellite system that's really about bringing broadband to those people that are underserved or unserved around the world. And we always sort of really quickly go to, oh, that must mean sub-Saharan Africa. That is a problem and we want to serve there. But you don't have to go far even in, in the United States to find people that are working off copper that was laid down in the 40s and 50s, 1940s, 1950s, and are running one megabit per second if, if they're lucky. And, and we can think we can bring broadband to those folks as well. So you mentioned in that introductory video that obviously you're second to the market here in a way, uh, that Starlink and SpaceX has already uh, leapt out in front. They've got something like 3,500 satellites up, and it seems to me that they've sort of taken a page from Amazon, and that is they've gotten big fast. So I wonder, how do you compete with that? You know, I think this is one of those things where the headlines would have you think that this is a sports race and there's gonna be one winner. Uh, there are literally hundreds of millions of customers around the world that don't have access to great broadband. And, it, you know, the, each of these constellations and uh, Starlink, I am sure, is one of them. I can certainly speak for Kuiper. Uh, they're going to have a limited amount of bandwidth. It's a lot of bandwidth, but it is a limited amount of bandwidth. And I think there's plenty of room for two great constellations. And, you know, I, as, as an Amazon employee, and as, I really am really looking forward to broadband for more people. We want people to have access to services like Amazon, services like other Internet properties. And so I think more constellations is generally good. I, I do think we have some benefits, though, in ours. I think we've found a way to build the, uh, the dish that goes into the customer premises, the actual dish that they connect to the satellite network at a much lower cost than anybody has seen before, including Starlink. Uh, so I think we'll have some advantages to customers. But in the end, I think there'll be plenty of room for two constellations. I'm curious about that, about the cost and the advantages. Is there any way you could provide some more details about what you're doing to set yourself apart, you know, just in the marketplace generally? I mean, obviously, Amazon's very good at that and has been doing that for a long time. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple things that uh, are predicated in, in the Kuiper system. And one of the decisions we made very early on, not to get too technical, but is to build a system that's symmetric using the KA bandwidth up and down. And so to our base stations, we use KA, but also to the customer premise, uh, we use KA. And that, that obviously um, came at a cost. We have to have, fly a, a slightly larger satellite than others have. Uh, we have more power on our bus in the satellite. But the advantage to us was to be able to build a much lower cost, a much more efficient uh, antenna that goes into the customer premise. And remember, we're going to be building tens of millions of those. There's 3,236 satellites, but there's tens of millions of the things that go into people's homes. And so by bringing that price down, and now we think we're under $400 on the, on the bill of materials for that, I think that's a big uh, advantage for our architecture the second thing I would point out is, you know, Amazon has a very large uh, cloud presence with AWS. And so being able to have our, um, our backbone of the internet that is Kuiper basically get quickly into the AWS framework and that where a lot of web properties are already residing, Netflix and Amazon Video and other types of things, uh, gives us the ability to have lower latency to things in the internet, more security. I think that's another thing in our architecture that I'm really excited about. So who do you see are the customers? I mean, I've seen some estimates that are uh, 4 billion people worldwide without reliable access to broadband. Where are, where are your customers for that? And I wonder if there are different segments of the population or the business world that you're looking at. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's certainly consumers around the world, as you said. I don't know if it's four billion, but I certainly think it's hundreds and hundreds of millions. And uh, you know, there it's predicated about getting a global uh, system, a system that is affordable, because you want consumers to be able to have access to, access to this, but not at, at at super a pricing. And so I think that's one very large segment of the opportunity. I think there's a big enterprise opportunity out there, both in uh, businesses themselves that might have assets that are in places that they want to track that they can't get to. That could be maritime. That could be, uh, you know, uh, large construction equipment out in places that they wouldn't have access to. But it also might be large network operators who, you know, want to be able to access uh, a backhaul system that's reliable, that's high speed. We've already announced one of those with a partnership with Verizon, where we're looking at how we can use uh, our an enterprise version of the Kuiper antenna as backhaul instead of, say, microwave links or places where you can't even get backhaul today. And then we can get not only broadband to more rural areas, but you can also then get 5 to more rural areas, and that's just good for customers as well. And we've seen too, I mean, you know, what Starlink has done in Ukraine and the discussion with the Pentagon and their interest in it and the back and forth that they've had with SpaceX. I'm just curious if you think uh, the military is a potential customer for you, and have you had any discussions with them about it? Yeah, we've had discussions with uh, a bunch of different uh, parts of uh, governments, U.S. government uh, specifically. Uh, we did announce one contract with NASA where we're doing some investigations on satellite uh, laser interconnects. So imagine if you could uh, put reliable high-speed lasers on each of these satellites and then interconnect them in space, you could form a mesh network. So we have uh, signed a contract with NASA to investigate that and see what that is. I, I do think that Amazon in general, it's, it's kind of one of our tenants, believes that technology should be used to help national security. And so to the extent that Kuiper can help, 
uh, I think we're, we're open to those discussions. So I wonder too about how you make the business case closed. Amazon has talked about investing $10 billion into the system. I mean, the um, upfront costs are enormous. I mean, when Elon Musk started Starlink a few years ago, he talked openly about how maybe this would work, maybe it, it wouldn't. Uh, you know, the past, uh, other satellite companies have tried this in, in decades ago, uh, Teledesic, Iridium, and it didn't work. Um, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how you see the business case working for Amazon, and does Amazon, in terms of the synergies you have there, help you close that business case? Yeah, it, it, there, there's no uh, avoiding the that the road is littered with uh, uh, Leo Constellation ideas that have gone bankrupt in the past. So that is not lost on us. Uh, I think one of the things that Amazon has proven throughout the 25 plus years of its history is uh, we are very disciplined on return on invested capital. So now I'm not uh, belittling the risk of a project like this. As I said in that video, we have yet to put anything up in space. Hopefully that's coming very soon. But um, but uh, it, the business as as put down on paper and with the costs that we see, our antennas are coming, our launch costs, our, sat our per satellite costs, and the cost to run the network, all pencil up to be a good business for Amazon. And as I said, very good for customers at a price, I think that uh, that will be attractive. That, that being said, I think we have to always be uh, focused on the details in a business like this. We, we have to be cost conscious. Uh, we have to make sure that we're executing very, very at a very high level of reliability, of safety, and that uh, that what we kind of promised when we laid down that business model is something that is coming to fruition at every given milestone. We didn't green light, you know, uh, our launch contracts, which were billions of dollars, until we had a satellite on a bench that seemed to be working, and we had a antenna that seemed to be working. So we have milestones as we go along the way to ensure that we're making progress to what we want to deliver for customers. I'm, uh, I, but you know, we're a few years into this now, I've never been more optimistic because now you're starting to see silicon light up, you're starting to see the functionality light up, you're starting to see actually manufacturing uh, happening and uh, that, gives you, that gives you more confidence that you're on path to deliver the system. Yeah, it sounds like a very Jeff Bezos step-by-step -step, uh, approach. Uh, I want to ask you about sort of the timelines and where you are. I mean, we know you've signed, as you mentioned, those major launch contracts, contracts with several major uh, rocket launch providers. There's some news out about your expanding your satellite production facility. Um, so give us a sense of you know what's going on in terms of getting to uh, production and an operational capability. Yeah, so let's rewind six months. Like I said, we had gotten, uh, um, uh, we're doing a lot of custom silicon. A lot of that custom silicon had gotten back into the lab as we brought it up. Uh, and that in combined with where we thought the, uh, the antenna was, we felt confident to, uh, to acquire launch contracts. Uh, launch, uh, especially for heavy lift vehicles, everybody, you know, we see rockets launching every day, which by the way is so cool and amazing, uh, and they're landing now. But the fact of the matter is that heavy launch capacity is still pretty constrained. I think it will be for the for the coming years. And so we needed the lockdown. We have 92 flights locked down with ULA, Blue Origin, Ariane, and uh, that'll give us enough to get the vast majority of our constellation flying. So that's that's a good milestone as well. 
And then more recently, we've started now moving into the manufacturing phase of this. You know, other than Starlink, I never visited their manufacturing plant, but you know, generally the industry is focused, uh, the satellite industry is focused on building one or two birds every couple of years. Uh, to put that in contrast, we're going to have to build one to three satellites every single day. And so maybe even a little more than that. And so uh, uh, we have to build the manufacturing capabilities that looks more like consumer electronics or automobiles and less like the traditional uh, space industry. And so that uh, the announcement today of acquiring another 172,000 square feet in Kirkland was about uh, building the second phase of our manufacturing. Our first phase is in Redmond, it's up. And so what we're doing now is we've started uh, integration and uh, the final assembly of our first two prototype satellites. Uh, those should be done by the end of Q4 and we're in test right now. And then we'll be delivering those to uh, ULA's integration facility in the Cape in Q1 and getting them ready to fly. You touched on this a little bit in the uh, sort of opening question, but I wonder how does this fit into Amazon's larger ecosystem of products and services? And I'm just sort of curious for you, Dave, you've got such a broad portfolio there at Amazon. How much of your time is dedicated to, to Kuiper? Oh, let me answer the first question uh, first, and I'll get to your second question. The um, the you know, at the fundamental level, foundational level, broadband is what keeps Amazon going, right? You know, if, if people don't have access to the internet, uh, they can't go to our site to shop, they can't watch Lord of the Rings, uh, an enterprise customer can't uh, get an EC2 instance spun up in, uh, in AWS. So really more people having access to broadband spins the Amazon flywheel, it just does. So like, it's really foundational start there. That being said, I also think there are other good things that are to benefit. I mean, you know, one of the biggest ones is our, is the synergy with AWS. Uh, you know, we we again we can get bits into AWS's cloud very very quickly, and that can give us a lot of benefits for a lot of different types of solutions that you think as as workloads migrate to the cloud, having this global network that can move bits around the earth very very fast. Uh, and then and then drop them into a into a data center, uh, an AWS data center. Uh, the, the kind of the ideas when you start positioning it like that are almost limitless. I think that's another area where I think we have a lot of upside here. Uh, that being said, you know, second question: How much time do I work on? I, I've often said I have a great job, one of the best jobs I know of. Uh, so I do get to bounce around from different things, self-driving taxis to Alexa to Kuiper. But I'm happiest when I'm, I, I've said it before, when I'm living in the future. And Kuiper is one of those projects uh, that we get to really look out into the future. So I, I spend a good amount of my time on this project. That being said, all my teams are amazing. Um, Rajiv, who leads the Kuiper team, uh, and everybody is working for him. Uh, they're doing the heavy lifting. I, I just get to come along for the ride from time to time. So uh, Amazon, in a way, has had a target on its back for a long time by Congress, regulators who think it's too big, too powerful. If now you become a major internet provider, is there a concern that, uh, that, that those concerns from Congress and others are going to even come down harder on you guys? I, I have talked to uh, I, I, you know, uh, dozens of congressmen and, and women and senators and I tell you that they embrace Kuiper as as much as anything I have ever seen, and I think the reason I think they realize that, and I kind of started here, 
that this is not the type of project that five people in a garage can do. Uh, 10 people, 100 people. We have 1,000 plus people working on this project. And as you mentioned, it's going to be billions of dollars of capital before we start seeing material cash flow. And so uh, you, you really have to look at a project like this and say, what companies uh, could tackle this problem? And I think that's why, uh, you know, that's a good example where Amazon scale can, can bring to society. And when I talk to uh, a congressperson from North Dakota or a senator from Kansas, they know how important broadband is in, in their con, uh, for their contingents, uh, constituents. You know, the, those, those rural areas where there's not telemedicine, there's not great access to uh, education online that we all sort of think is the new normal, but even here in the United States, it's just not. So I think there's gonna be a lot of support for this. Yeah, obviously, you know, providing internet to, you know, areas that aren't served or are underserved can have an enormous impact and perhaps nowhere greater than, you know, in countries where these oppressive regimes, and we've seen some reporting about the White House potentially interested in, in using uh, Starlink in Iran. I just wonder if that's something you've been thinking about, about operating Kuiper in some of these countries, and if you've had any discussions internally or with the government about that, because I imagine that's a very delicate situation uh, to navigate. Yeah, we're, probably, we're too early at this point to be having detailed discussions about that, but I would say from a macro level that uh, access to broadband uh, is uh, part and parcel to access to information. And when you get information that is not um, uh, that that is not censored, that is the actual truth, then that is the path to freedom. And you know, we I was lucky enough to be born in the United States and uh, live in a world that has been free all my life. And uh, sometimes we take that for granted. And some of the world events that we see right now. And I could think of nothing more important than uh, helping to get access to information for, for customers around the world. How we do that and what are the details and the legalities of it, we're too early to be thinking about too much about that. We gotta get the system up and working first. But I do believe the, the moral high ground of access to ground truth information is an important one for society. Yeah, we actually, we have a question from one of our audience members, uh, James Weitzer of Illinois, who wonders about this whole idea about the space environment, about polluting uh, Earth orbit. And when we say LEO, that refers to low Earth orbit. Uh, uh, astronomers have been concerned about these thousands, potentially tens of thousands of additional satellites flooding Earth orbit. Uh, what sort of steps uh, will you take to, to mitigate that or allay those concerns? Yeah, the biggest concern is reflectivity. Uh, you know, it's kind of think of it as kind of reverse light pollution uh, that it could interfere. So we uh, we're doing two things. One, we're working with a set of astronomers to understand their concerns. So we've already started that before we get our first satellite into space. We're talking to them and, and trying to understand what they have to think, uh, what ideas they have, what how, what we can do to mitigate it. Secondly, even on our prototype satellites, we're gonna start uh, flying some solutions that we think might mitigate it. Uh, I don't know if you'll ever be able to mitigate it 100%. It's a, it's a complicated problem, depending on where you are, what inclination you're at, where the sun is at. But what you wanna try to do is on an asymptotical basis, kind of minimize the amount of re reflectivity. 
And so even with our first prototypes, we're going to be testing some ideas. I don't know if those will come to fruition. You know, Amazon has a long track record of kind of iterative testing. And, uh, but we, we do believe it's an important uh, thing to, uh, to realize and also try to mitigate over time. You know, I, I wonder what you think about uh, the sort of new space economy. A lot of people are talking about it. There have been some estimates, you know, that the, the space economy could be worth a trillion dollars. Um, but it's interesting to me that you have some of these big companies, uh, even like Amazon, that traditionally is not a space company, now getting into space, seeing a lot of opportunities there. I, I wonder what you make of the, the relative health of the space economy uh, you know, in low Earth orbit? Is this something that is really going to be viable? Well, I think there's lots of things, whether it's LEO or MEO or even GEO. I, GEO, I don't think is going to go extinct for lots of use cases. I think that um, uh, space is, we're kind of, you know, it, using a baseball analogy, we're kind of the first batter of the first inning uh, of, of, a, of, of a baseball game here as it relates to commercialization of space. And for better or for worse, you know, the industry kind of took off a number of decades, you know, and we kind of stalled there for a while on our on the commercialization of space. Um, that that being said, as we move forward and you start thinking about the launch capacity that's going to be added over the next decade or two uh, with uh, both large vehicles and small vehicles that we're starting to see come to fruition, uh, reusability, if, if you kind of look at it as kind of how much mass can we put to orbit of all those different types of orbits and even more to deep space and contrast that today to where we might be 20 years from now, it's going to be uh, orders of magnitude more mass to orbit per year. And uh, then you can, once you have that and that resource becomes a little less constrained, that getting, getting a kilogram to, uh, to any orbit you want to, it opens up your imagination. You know, it's kind of, you begin to think, wow, what are all the different possibilities? Lots of them we're talking about today with broadband and photography and mapping and sensors, but there's all sorts of other things, including, you know, how can we get resources from space and help uh, bring them back for manufacturing and things like that. So I'm very bullish and optimistic because of the, and by the way, we're riding on the backs of uh, uh, the hard work of you know, decades of work by literally rocket engineers. So, and, but if, if over the next 10 to 20 years, that work's going to come to fruition. You can, you can see it happening. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about all these new rockets that are coming online. In fact, the, the ones that you've chosen uh, to launch Kuiper uh, are all sort of new next generation rockets, but that also means that they haven't flown yet, whether it's uh, ULA's uh, Vulcan rocket uh, or uh, Blue Origin's New Glenn, uh, what is your confidence that these rockets are going to be, you know, flying and becoming reliable in the near term? Yeah, th I think the last part of that question is the most relevant. It's not a question of uh, will they fly, it's just when, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a timing question. So, um, and so we hedged our bets a bit. We, we do, because of the mass and the, and the form factor of our satellites, we do need heavy lift rockets. Um, and so, uh, so that is a more constrained resource right now for, to make the economics and the timing and everything that we have, the constraints we have to work. And so, you know, we did what you would do uh, in any business is we spread the risk around and we cho chose multiple launch providers, proven vehicles that we know can fly today that are kind of at the very 
uh, low end of heavy lift, and we have uh, nine um, Atlas Fives. Some of the last nine Atlas Fives already under contract. That's a proven vehicle. Um, it's kind of at the low end of of the lift capacity we like to see. And then, as you said, we've uh, gotten New Glenn and Vulcan and Ariane Six, and so those hopefully come into place. Uh, there are also other um, providers out there that uh, you know we're open. We have a lot of we have a lot of satellites to to put up into space, so we're open to um, you know contracting with anyone out there. Well, that's interesting. Does that include SpaceX? I mean, would you fly on the Falcon Nine? That's proven to be one of the most reliable, if not the most reliable, rocket out there. Yeah, the uh, for. for Yes, we are open to talk, you know, talking to SpaceX. You'd be crazy not to, given their track record here. But uh, I would say Falcon 9 is probably at the low end of kind of the capacity that we need. But as you think about them, uh, you know, getting more Falcon Heavy, but more importantly, as they think about Starship and, and getting that into production readiness, that those become very viable candidates for us as well. So I just wonder, I mean, if you've got all of these satellite uh, constellation companies out there, and for our audience, what's going on is the technology is really going through something of a revolution, where you know, it used to be that a satellite was massive the size of, say, a garbage truck, but now that can be as small as a loaf of bread or you know, a, a small refrigerator. Um, but I just wonder, Dave, in terms of the talent pipeline, because you've got all of these companies OneWeb, Planet, whether it's remote sensing, imaging, or communications, or internet that are building these satellites, are you able to attract the talent that you need as you're ramping up and really entering what's a critical phase for Kuiper? Well, so far the answer to that has been yes. I, I've never seen a team come together so quick with such amazing talent. I mean, it really is pretty stunning, uh, the, the group of people. Like I said, we're over a thousand people now. We're continuing to hire um, you know, you, 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 the labor market ebbs and flows, so you never know what, what things are going to look like as we move forward. But we, we've assembled a team of incredible engineers. And, um, you know, and the early work was a lot of obviously designing what the payload is going to look like and, uh, and getting the silicon kind of um, uh, validated, uh, simulated, and then off to be taped out. And so that, that's where we had to get the early talent. And, Finding those RF engineers, those silicon engineers, those payload engineers for the satellite uh, proved to be the hardest problem, but the team, uh, th those are butts and seats. Those are people working and, and the fruition of their work is already uh, coming back to the lab. So I'm pretty optimistic about the team we've put together. And we're, we're coming up at the end of the time. I wanna see if I can squeeze in a couple more questions. Uh, if I have this right, Dave, you need to buy uh, to meet the requirements in your FCC license, have about half of your constellation up or about 1,600 satellites up within the next couple of years. Uh, is that correct? And, and are you going to meet that goal? Yeah, uh, we have to have half, uh, as per our FCC license, half our constellation has to be up and operational by July 26th. Uh, we are on track for that. Uh, you know, a lot of that's because of the help of some of our partners. Obviously, we've um, uh, contracted most recently with ULA, who's been an amazing partner for us uh, to uh, get a ride with our prototype satellites for on the first uh, Vulcan launch, which uh, you know I think Tori has said is going to be in Q1. And so we're we're in the process of uh, getting our our proto satellites ready, but we're not we're not holding there given that the schedule we have in front of us. We're in parallel bringing up manufacturing of our uh, 
assuming success of our prototype satellites, we're bringing up manufacturing for our production satellites in parallel. And so we're on track to meet that, uh, meet that milestone. So last question, um, just looking ahead in, in the future, I mean, a lot of people in space look 40, 50 years out. Let's keep a sort of more realistic timeline 10 years out in terms of the future of space and where Amazon and Kuiper are in it. What sort of benefits you see? What does that landscape uh, look like when you look around the corner down the road? Yeah, I think in 10 years from now, we have tens of millions of customers that are uh, on, Kuiper, on Kuiper system. Um, and that they're enjoying the benefits of, consumers are enjoying the benefits of low cost broadband in places they could never have gotten it before. Uh, I think there are you know, thousands of enterprise customers at that point or, that are uh, uh, understanding and now inventing with the reality that moving a bit from the far side of the planet to the other side of the planet uh, at the speed of light is the new normal without having to make fiber hops. And, uh, and uh, we're able to help those customers as well. And I think we'll be well in 10 years, we'll be well into the design of our second generation constellation of presuming success of our first one, uh, which, you know, like all things at Amazon, we're gonna learn from what our customers say, we're gonna look at what the latest technology looks like and iterate. I think we're building uh, one, one of, if not the most advanced RF uh, sat LEO satellite ever built. Uh, that being said, I already know we can do better in V2. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so as soon as we start launching V1, uh, we'll be ready to start thinking about what the next iteration of this looks like so improve customers' lives even more 10 years from hence. Yeah, well, it's all very exciting. Unfortunately, though, that's all the time we have. Dave Lemp, thank you so much for joining us. That was a real pleasure. Thanks for the time. I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.